I gotta say, I really love my job, I do. I get to come and um, on a Sunday, especially come up and, and, and speak to you guys here, people online as well, obviously during the pandemic. Um, not everybody has been coming to church. Some people have been tuning in online, but I, it's my privilege to connect with people. I really do love my job. And obviously, uh, I don't just work on a Sunday. I try to connect with people throughout the week as well. And we love seeing our church do ministries. One of the ministries that we, um, that we had done recently is the fact that um, some people in our church put together a gift basket and gift bags with some goodies in them and a book. Anybody get one of these? Did anyone not get one of these? Everybody's got one. Good. I'm glad you got one of these. Did you get um, in your bag or, or, your, or your basket, did you get a, um, some chocolate truffles? Some tro- My wife made those. They're, they're amazing. I can't eat them because I'm on a strict diet right now to be healthy because I'm trying to be healthy and I can't eat them. But I look forward to the day where I'm, I'm taking a break from my diet, which is coming up soon, and I'll have a chocolate truffle. Um, they are really good. Hopefully you enjoyed those. But, but we wanted to get you the book. The book is A Case for Christmas. Typically, you know, I say I really enjoy my job. Normally in the past, I've taken a lot of um, liberty to preach whatever I feel God would lead me to preach. And um, I've been here four, four and a half years now. In February, actually, it'll be five years that I've been here. Strange. Time flies. I mean, Macy was like down here when we showed up, and now she's like up here. So time goes by fast. But when I would preach, I would preach from the Bible, and I would pick a book of the Bible to study. So uh, like Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. I would go verse by verse through the Bible. You guys have seen me do this. Um, Someone from our congregation was inspired to buy these books for Christmas. And if there's ever a time I take a a break from preaching what I want to preach or what God is leading me to preach, it's during Christmas, during Advent. And so uh, these books were bought and distributed, and I'm glad you guys got them. And um, we thought, let's go through them together. It's a four, there's four chapters in this book. That kind of makes it easy, doesn't it? Advent is four weeks leading up to Christmas. Hopefully this is a spark for some of you who still haven't bought bought, bought me your present for me, right? You got that in your mind? No, I'm just kidding. You guys don't have to get me a gift. You don't have to get me a gift. It's, uh, but you can, um, you, can, you can read the book. This was a gift from us to you. And um, so we're going to look at it. This book is written by a man named Lee Strobel. He wrote a famous book. His first book was, got, got uh, pretty popular. It was called A Case for Chris. No, for Christ. Case for Christ. This is A Case for Christmas. So he actually has several books. One is called, that I've read, is called A Case for Miracles. And he is an investigative journalist. So he goes around and interviews people who know a lot more than he does. And then he writes it down. And so for some of you, you're like, I don't know about this Christmas thing. You mean, you're telling me a virgin gave birth to a boy who they claimed to come from heaven and was the son of God. And we as Christians say, yes, we believe that. And you might say, you're crazy. And we might say, yeah, we believe it does sound crazy, but we believe there's actually evidence to believe this. And so this book actually takes you through the evidence to why we believe what we believe. 
And so I think it's good for you. We actually encouraged you, if you're a part of our church, to read the book. But also, we, the baskets weren't actually for you. They were for you to give to someone else. So hopefully someone else who maybe has never heard the case for Christmas isn't aware of the evidence to, for why we as Christians believe what we believe. Maybe they got the book and we'll look into it, and that would be cool. But this is um, a four-part series. Uh, I'll be preaching Sunday mornings. Um, Tuesday nights, Pastor Liz will be doing her book review online. And there also are some videos that will go along with that that I believe, Susie, is it true that Liz will air those with her teachings Sunday, uh, Tuesday evening? I believe that's how the plan goes, is that there'll be Tuesday at 7 on our church's Facebook page. You can see the videos that go with the book. No, 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 but it's the DVD. You're not showing the video videos? Okay, so you have to come in person to see the videos. Okay, and the book studies online. Wonderful. Okay, great. So if you want a link to the videos, because you can't be here Tuesday, just uh, talk to me or Susie, and we can make sure you get the emails for those videos. This week, hold on, I need to take a drink. This week, we're going to look at chapter one. Chapter one is on the eyewitness evidence. The eyewitness evidence. In today's, even, so we live 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, and yet even today, eyewitness evidence is extremely important in any case. If someone is, um, has committed a felony against someone else and uh, should be arrested, it's eyewitness evidence that is one of the strongest pieces of evidence. Obviously, we have newer technology today as well. We have like DNA evidence. But even some of those reasons for why someone's DNA might be at the scene is a lot stronger when there's someone who witnessed a crime to explain what happened on a crime scene. Unfortunately, these things happen and people need to dig into the evidence. But today, we're not digging into a crime scene. We're digging into a claim like I said, that Jesus was born in a manger, that Jesus came from heaven as the Son of God. And so when you're looking for a witness, you want to find someone who's credible and trustworthy. Here's the problem, guys. Uh, a lot of people don't believe in the Bible, not because of the Bible and the evidence that's in the Bible itself. A lot of people don't believe in the Bible because the people who are speaking the truth about the Bible, they don't trust them. That's us, Christians, for those of you who call yourself a Christian. They're like, okay, I won't even read that Bible unless I see a witness, an eyewitness who's actually credible and trustworthy. And as soon as people see people in the church who are willing to hurt each other, who aren't honest, all of that credibility and trustworthiness is thrown out the door and then they won't actually examine who our Jesus is. And so I think one of the things that we can do in examining the evidence for Jesus is to realize that, hey, we need to be credible and we need to be trustworthy. And I believe that that's how God set up the New Testament in its writings is that he chose men who would tell the truth who were credible, who were reliable, men who followed Jesus. And so the first chapter of Lee Strobel's book goes on to talk about these people who wrote about the life of Jesus. Okay, for those of you who don't know, the Old Testament is the story of the nation of Israel, 
It's the Jewish people. Right? God, you, you've heard of Moses. God calls Moses to gather the Hebrews in the land of Egypt and to pull them out of Egypt through miraculous signs and wonders and into the promised land. So even the, the Jews have a narrative that is filled with miracles. And, and they get out of, the, out of Egypt through the ten plagues that God puts on the nation of Egypt, and they walk into the wilderness, and God helps them fight battles so that they can get into the promised land, a land that is still important on the map today. You wonder why uh, Jerusalem and Israel is always fought over? It has always been fought over. It's an important piece of history, but it is also important for the timeline of humanity. So here the scene is set. The, the people who are Jews live in the nation of Israel and, in, and their capital is Jerusalem. And some time goes by and there's prophecies of a Messiah that will come and lead their nation. But not only was the Messiah supposed to lead their nation, the Messiah was to save people from their sins. He was going to make a way for people to have communion with God. That means to be one with God. So that you and I could have a relationship with God. And here's the problem. In that day when Jesus was born, the Jews started to think the promise was only for them. But the Old Testament prophesied that the promise would be for all nations to know God. So you don't have to be a Jew to experience the promise that God has for him. And so that's where the New Testament picks up, where Jesus is born. And so we have these four biographies of Jesus. Now, the, the, the titles of these books aren't uh, the biography number one of Jesus and then have some clever title, biography number two of Jesus with another title. No, it's the, the, the Gospels is what they're known as, are written uh, and titled by the people who wrote them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You might wonder, who are these men and what makes them so credible? First of all, Matthew was a tax collector and he was one of Jesus' disciples. Say, well, well, what does that mean that he was a tax collector? Who cares if he was a tax collector? You've got to realize that when Matthew writes his biography of the life of Jesus as a disciple of Jesus and as a tax collector, he's actually writing to the Jews of his day who would have hated him. You say, well, how does that make him more credible? If you wanted to write a biography about your own life and you wanted the nice things to be said about you and all the things that would almost butter you up to a place where people wouldn't actually believe what you have to say because you're like, well, why would someone write that about you if they were like, if they only liked you? And yet tax collectors were known as people who were unliked. It's like finding someone who's your enemy to write about you. And so... If you read the Gospels and you read about this character of, of Matthew, there's not too much said about him, but what we can gather from what the tax collectors in those days, they were the people who would come and collect the bill payments and collect their money, and they actually worked for the Roman oppressors, and so the Jews really didn't like the Romans, right? They saw them as a foreign oppressor. They were almost like enslaved to the Romans, and yet the tax collectors were the ones who were willing to kick their brothers and sisters and their family members aside and say, I'm going to go work for the bad guys because I can get paid more, and they lived a life of luxury. And this is who Matthew was. And yet God chose Matthew to follow him to have a changed life 
and even throw away the, the, the riches. It's a story of redemption, isn't it? When, when someone goes astray and he leaves his brothers behind, but then God brings them back in and changes them and turns them into someone who would follow him once again. And so this is the story of Matthew. And so if there was everyone, anyone who could see, you could see the credibility in someone's life, it's someone who went through some form of transformation. Listen, if you're going to say, hey, come follow me, I'm going to show you the way to God. I'm going to show you that his ways are better than my ways. But then when you look at their life, nothing has changed. You're going to say, uh, I don't think so. I don't think you're worth following because everything that you say and you do in following this guy hasn't had any results. But in, in Matthew's life, he had left everything behind to go follow Jesus. So that's the first gospel is Matthew. Mark is the second gospel. And Mark is actually a student of Peter. Peter was one of Jesus's, if not Jesus's one right-hand man. At one point, Jesus takes Peter aside and he says, hey, Peter, it's you who I'm going to build the church on. And the word Peter means rock. And he says, you're, Peter, you're my rock. Peter's name actually was Simon. But he nicknamed him Peter because the word Peter means rock. And he says, I'm going to build my church on you because, you know, a, a good house, a good um, uh, building needs to be built on a foundation that is solid. And so he's saying, I'm going to build my foundation on you, Peter, and you're going you're to see the church be built through you. And so here, Mark was Peter's disciple just as Peter followed Jesus. So if there's anyone who we could believe you know, with Matthew, I said, hey, here we see someone whose life has been trans transformed, someone who is kind of an antithesis of the Jews who had his life changed. And now we see Peter, who chose Mark to write his gospel, and Peter was a commoner. What do we know about Peter? He was a fisherman. You know, some people don't trust people in suits or people who dress up a certain way, like lawyers or politicians, you know, those guys who wear suits all the time. They'd rather trust someone with a hard hat on or with some work boots, someone who's willing to get their, themselves dirty. They want, they want to trust someone who has lived life the way they've lived life. You ever been in a situation like that where you have a harder time trusting someone if they're putting on a show for you than if you know they've lived the life that you've lived or a similar type of life? Well, this was Peter. Peter was a fisherman. He was a commoner. He struggled through life the way most people struggled through life. And so when Mark writes his gospel, I believe we can recognize that this is the words from Peter, a man who they wouldn't expect to be a scholar. He wasn't like a professor. He was an average dude who needed to tell the story of Jesus. Now, for some people, you're like, hold on a second. I don't know if I just trust anyone on the streets. Uh, and, and yeah, maybe you're right, Matthew, you had a, a, tr a transformed life by Jesus, but as a tax collector, I don't know if I can trust that type of dude either. You know what? You know who I trust? I trust the professional. I trust the doctor. Well, the next gospel is the gospel of Luke, and Luke was known as a physician. Luke was one who was paid by the apostle Paul to do his research. He was a real historian. So if you're someone who's like, well, hold on, if these are just commoners, where's the real intellectual who's willing to go and investigate? Luke was that person. And Paul was willing to send Luke. And Paul himself has a similar story to um, 
Matthew, the tax collector. Paul actually was a Jew who hated Christians. Paul went around killing Christians and putting them in prison. And yet Paul meets Jesus on, his, on the way to actually go and imprison more Christians. And Jesus blinds him and his eyes go blind. And, and Paul has this encounter with Jesus where Jesus speaks and says, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you coming against my Christians? And, and Paul's life dramatically changes from that mo moment on, from being someone who would go against Christians and kill Christians to someone who who started the movement of planting churches and would do missionary work to the people who weren't Jews. Because up until that point in the Christian history, all of the people who were Christians were uh, Jewish descendants. But God's plan to be a minister to more than just the Jews, uh, the Bible calls them Gentiles, those who weren't Jews, to be a minister to the Gentiles, he sent Paul, but he needed to first transform Paul's life. And so Paul says, I need someone who's credible, who will investigate the man who I ran into, the man who blinded me and who gave my sight back and then transformed my life. And so Paul hires Luke, the physician, who's also a historian. So that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are known as the synoptic gospels. But then uh, the last gospel that we believe was written was written by John. We believe John was the youngest disciple. And yet he was a part of the inner core. Jesus had 12 apostles, but he had three who were his closest friends. Some of you are like that, right? You got your group of friends. Maybe like you look around the room and some of them are here with you. You got your church buddies. Maybe um, Jesus actually traveled in a number of different groups. At some point, he sends out a group of 70 or 72 disciples and they go out. But then he's got his 12 apostles, which are the ones who follow him wherever he goes. He's the, they're the ones who are living with him. But then he's got these inner three who he actually takes them aside more often because he's choosing them to be like I said, his right-hand men, the one who he was going to do and send out for leadership. The most trustworthy people. And John was in that inner circle. Uh, Peter and James were the other ones who were in that inner circle with Jesus. When Jesus needed to go up onto the mountain to pray, he picked Peter, James, and John to be the ones who would go with him to pray because he thought they were the ones who were trustworthy. And so John, the youngest, well, we believe, also lived the longest. But John's book's a little different than the others. The other ones were really written in a way to convince people of the historical uh, facts and the things that Jesus did in his life, whereas John's gospel really is a lot of the words of Jesus and Jesus' teachings right before he went to the cross. And so there's a little more of a theology in the Gospel of John. And what I mean by that, theology is just a fancy word for saying the study of God, the science of knowing God. And so this theology is brought out by John so that we can understand more about who Jesus is in relation to God, how Jesus is God himself, but also the Son of God, and how he lives in a triune relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here we have those four different Gospels. There was a need for four different Gospels. Luke's Gospel, you can find this on page 29 of this book. Page 29, um, Lee Strobel explains that uh, the reason for the four different Gospels. Luke's Gospel is, uh, is, he writes as a historian, but also for the social concerns of society. So if you're someone who has an interest in social justice, you can read the Gospel of Luke and understand how Luke writes from uh, 
as a historian of the poor and towards social concerns. Like I said, Matthew writes more concerning the connection of Judaism to Christianity. So if you're someone who really enjoys reading the Old Testament and you want to know why the Old Testament and the New Testament are linked together, you can read the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew's intent was to show his people, the Jews, the connection between Judaism and Christianity. Mark is a gospel where Mark wanted to show that Jesus was the suffering servant, that Jesus came to serve people. If you read the gospel of Mark, it's really fast-paced. It's the shortest gospel with only 16 chapters, and it goes from event to event to event where Jesus is ministering to people who need to be healed, both inner healing and physical healing, ultimately healing humanity through dying on the cross. And John's gospel, like I said before, John is showing more of a theology. And so if you're interested in in studying theology, uh, you can read the gospel of John. You might say, well, pastor, you know, how do I know that these gospels are credible outside of just those books themselves? Well, the apostle Paul wrote um, in 1 Corinthians what we call a creed. Lee Strobel writes about this in his book, A creed is a statement on which we believe. Uh, If you work in an organization, some organizations put together a a mission statement or uh, a vision statement, right? And you say, this is what we believe. We've even done that here. If you haven't noticed, at the back of the church, at the top, our mission statement is to live and love like Jesus. So that's similar to what a creed is. And in the New Testament, before any of the books of the New Testament were even written, There were creeds because they needed unifying beliefs. You can imagine starting an organization and starting a group of people or even starting a religion and you say, oh, let's get together and you don't even know why you're there. Well, you better figure it out quick or people are going to go their own way, won't they? But here's what happened. They all realized, hey, uh, we were following Jesus. He was dead and then he rose from the dead and he lived with us for 40 days and then he went to heaven and now we're here together. What do we really believe? And so the New Testament writers, I mean, before even the New Testament writers started writing the gospels or writing the letters to the churches, they formed creeds. And Paul received one of these creeds and he puts it in one of his letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses three to seven, we, we see the creed that Paul received. Verse three says, for what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance. So he says, this is the first thing that's important in our Christian life. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of them whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he also appeared to me as one abnormally born. It's interesting how he says, hey, he appeared to me, he appeared to the apostles, He also appeared to over 500 people, some of whom, yes, have died, but most of them who are still living. What is he saying there? We've put together a creed that says Jesus was buried, he uh, he died, or sorry, he died, he was buried, and then he was raised, uh, like the scriptures say, on the third day. This is the fundamental belief 
of Christianity, that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is the creed that they said, and, they, they, and then part of that creed is that he appeared to 500 people, and some of them are still living today. So if you wanted to, at that time, investigate yourself, you could go look for one of the people who've actually seen the risen body of Jesus. So when we're talking about eyewitness evidence, yes, there's the four Gospels, but at the time that those Gospels were starting to be written, at the time that the Apostle Paul was writing his letters to the churches, they could go see and talk to over 500 people who had to have a collaborative story. And you would think that if Jesus appeared to 500 people, that if it wasn't true, there'd be a whistleblower who would say, hey, this isn't going to happen. Actually, in the book of Acts, it talks about this. They, they, the, the disciples are starting to spread the news about Jesus, that Jesus died and that he rose from the dead and that he's alive. And the Jewish Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish uh, religious leaders, they don't like it. So they pull the disciples into, the, into, the, into prison, actually, and then they put them on, on, um, on trial. And as they're, they're being interrogated, one of the Jewish leaders actually says, hey, listen, we've seen other rebellions happen before, and most of them fizzle out. But if this one's truly from God, this one will continue. And that was a little bit prophetic, wasn't it? Because some 2,000 years later, the church is still existing today, and our church is not a rebellion in terms of a rebellion against government. Our church, the church should be a rebellion of love where God moves through us, that people could still testify today that God is alive because they see God in us. See, if I see God in you, I can't deny that God is moving in someone. You may say, how can you see if God's in someone? Listen, I, see, I think one of the most powerful testimonies that someone can have for the sake of that Jesus Christ is alive is a transformed life. Amazing grace, right? I was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Now, uh, that's a spiritual blindness. Now I'm awakened to my senses to the things of God. This transformation that can happen within us is the same transformation that happened to those writers of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the other 12, and the 500 who saw Jesus, who went around telling people that Jesus is alive because their lives were transformed. And still, some 2,000 years later, we're handing out books to people because we want people who are struggling in their life and who need healing and who need to be restored to God and to meet God so that they can live full, powerful lives that are filled with love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control. We want that for everyone, but they're only going to see it if they can see the witness that is inside of you. Not just you, me, us, the church. That they would see God within us. Do you know we're created in the image of God? What does that mean? Does that mean that God has eyes and a nose and a mouth? Well, Jesus took on that flesh when he came down. Yeah, but the Bible says that God's an all-consuming fire. The Bible says that if we were to look, look into the face of Father God, we would, we would be consumed. That people can't look in this flesh. We can't see God and live. That's what the Bible says, how powerful God is. And yet Jesus made a way through by becoming flesh that we could know God. And when you know God, when you truly know God, you can't help but be changed. You 
can't help but change. So when you become a Christian, just so you know, being a Christian isn't about us being our best selves. You can go to Tony Robbins. You can go and listen to Oprah Winfrey. You can read some good self-help books if you want to change yourself. But the truth is, when you know God, God changes you. There's a huge difference there. It's not about your own willpower. It's not about your own self-control. Who knows people who can't change themselves by their own willpower because maybe they're addicted. Maybe they've had a troubled life of abuse. Maybe their lives are just in so much pain that they can't get out of their own pain and misery. Listen, there is hope for those people because the Bible says that Jesus came to set the captives free. That those people who are in bondage, which means they're in shackles, which means they're in prison, that Jesus came to set the prisoners free. So what does hearing the eyewitness accounts of people who experienced Jesus 2,000 years ago mean for us today? I hope that when you hear the Christmas story again this Christmas season, what it means for you today is that you too, you want to encounter Jesus and become an eyewitness. And that by becoming an eyewitness and you see God's power start to work within you, you want to start to testify yourself. How does knowing that these men encountered Jesus impact how you think about Christmas? If the story is true, God leaving heaven to come to earth to have a relationship with you, to set you free, to give you love and joy and peace and hope. How does that make your Christmas different? Now, just for us who truly believe this message, those of us who are invested in the kingdom of God, who call ourselves a part of the body of Christ, who call ourselves the church, my question is this, are you a witness? Do you shine your light or do you hide it under a bushel? When Lee Strobel's talking about the eyewitnesses of the day Jesus lived, those who wrote the Bible, they were not afraid to even lose their lives because they believed that message was so important. It's believed that 11 out of the 12 Disciples were martyred, and the last one, who was John, lived his last days exiled on an island. Think about that for a second, and then consider if God is calling you to be a witness, are you believing this message as much as they believed it? And then my last question for you is this, what eyewitness testimony do you have? Have you made a list of the things God has done in your life? Yesterday in our men's meeting, it was actually a pretty good meeting, we talked about how God has moved in our lives in the past when we've heard his voice. Here's the thing, if you hear God's voice and you listen to it, things are gonna change and you're gonna start to become an eyewitness. But you need to seek his voice. The Bible says if you seek, you will find. And as you seek his voice and you hear his voice, and you follow his lead. Listen, you might hear God's voice loud and clear. I've met people who've heard God loud and clear and they still go their own selfish way. But if you want true transformation, you hear his voice, you follow his lead and you give yourself to him and then life starts to be different for you. And the Bible says to count your cost because that is a scary thing to change your life, to follow God, to turn from the old things and to turn to new ways. I encourage you, share your testimony do it with your words, speak the truth, but sometimes people are annoyed if we just talk, 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 but we don't demonstrate it. Show it how you live your life. Be a loving person. Demonstrate what God has done in your life by getting rid of the things in your life that put people off and, and put on Jesus. Jesus is God's gift.
This is what Christmas is all about. I was trying to tell my daughter this yesterday. It's, she was like, I'm only getting this amount of presents. She has no clue how many presents she's getting for one. But she's complaining about how many presents she thinks she's getting. I'm like, girl, you've got it all wrong. It's not about what you get. It's about giving. Christmas is about giving. And God is the greatest giver. And the greatest gift that God could ever give us is himself when he gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. And the best way to testify, which means to be that witness, is to be image bearers of God, to show God's love to other people, and to be a giver like Jesus is a giver. I'd love for us as a church just to be more giving this Christmas and being like God. I'm going to pray that this Christmas we would be witnesses. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we read this book by Lee Strobel, Lord, and read about how the eyewitnesses witnessed Jesus' life and how these men can be credible and trustworthy, We pray that we too would be credible and trustworthy. We pray that people would see Jesus in us. We pray that we would be loving and generous and kind. We pray that we would be the way you are in terms of you brought peace to the earth. And we pray that we too would bring peace to wherever we go. We pray that this Christmas, Lord, that as we seek you, our testimony would build. that, That we would grasp who you are and what you've done for us. And there would be an excitement that builds as we look forward to celebrating your birth. And Lord, that our lives would not be just a testimony by words, but they would be a testimony by deed that people would see your goodness in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.